Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. I've been a big fan of her game for a while. I'm, I'm excited to get to the interview, but we got to do the bio first. So I'm going to cut this short, but it's it's a lot. So she's a three-time NCAA Beach Champion. She's a Pac-12 Champion twice, two-time All-American. She's a Big West Champion. She's an OUA Champion. She's a U21 World Champion. She won Canada Games on the beach. She's represented Canada 35 times on the beach, finishing in the top 10 15 times. And all this doesn't include all the provincial and national championships she's won on the beach and with Defensive Volleyball Club. Please welcome to the show, Sophie Bukovic. Sophie, thanks for doing this. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you. Yeah, so let's let's get into it. That's a very impressive volleyball resume, but I think people who know you well would say that, you know, you've got some siblings who are awesome soccer players. So how did you go into volleyball, first of all? Because I'm sure you had options to play a lot of other sports, right? Yeah, I did. Well, um, funny enough, my mom wanted all of us to be in a band. So she <laughs> started off putting us all into music, and clearly that did not work out. So... Yeah, we all started playing soccer at a young age. I think it was just a great way for my mom to get, you know, her errands ran when, you know, she had four kids as a single mom. She needed a little bit of downtime. So she threw us all into soccer and things just kind of escalated from there. We all loved the competitiveness of it and all continued to play soccer for a very long time until my brother fell in love with basketball, where he played at Humber, won a national championship there, and then went to George Brown. And I think maybe going back this next year. Um, and then my older sister played soccer at McMaster University and is now the head soccer coach at Ryerson. And then my twin sister um, is a soccer superstar. She also is a professional freestyler. She is now currently playing um, in the Netherlands. She plays for Ajax, which is a very well-known team, if anyone is a soccer fan who's listening to this. So she went to school in the NCAA. She played at Oakland University and then transferred to Belmont in Nashville. So, yeah, I, like, grew up playing soccer with them. And then my older sister got recruited to play volleyball through school. Um, She ended up not really liking the game as much as I did, but kind of convinced me to get into it. She was like, you're tall, you're athletic. You know, this suits exactly, like, who you are as an athlete. So check it out. And I did. And I never looked back. So Nice. And how old were you? Were you in high school when you kind of got the bug? Or was this uh, grade school that you got into volleyball? I started my first year when I was... I think I was 13 U and then I stopped and I played soccer really seriously up until I was 15. I played on the provincial soccer team. I went through the whole like program and then it was probably about my U16 year that I needed to pick a sport because it was just getting a little overwhelming. And that's when I finally committed to, uh, to volleyball. Nice. Nice. And with you growing up in your area, which is like a hotbed for, for girls indoor volleyball right now, How did you decide of what club that you were going to affiliate with? Because there's a lot of options for a lot of good ones, right? Yeah, there's tons of options right now. Um, For me, I had a really good friend on my team. Her name is Maddie Hills. She's also from Etobicoke, from where I grew up. Her and I played together. She's like the start of my volleyball career, really. She brought me on the beach as her partner. She was more involved earlier on than I was, so she kind of showed me the ropes of volleyball. And so her and I played together at Etobicoke Titans. And then she was going to leave and go to a different club and she was going to go to Defensa, which is out in Burlington. So I decided to hop along for the ride and go to tryouts and was successful. And we had athletes from all over the GTA really playing for Defensa because it was such a well-renowned club. And they just, they knew what they were doing. They had a system and it was, it was a great experience. Yeah, and help me out with just the name dropping in defense, because I think you playing up might mess up my timeline a little bit, but I think you would have played a little bit with like the Autumn Bailey and Rivera and Fitterer era, but I think you also would have played with like Nikita Bosnowski and some other people, right? Yeah, so those girls were all on my team. Um, at the time, defense only had two age groups. They had an 18U team and a 16U team, and uh, we spent a lot of time together, all of us as a collective. So it was Nico Serator, it was uh, Andrea Fisher. You know, Michaela Reeser, it was all of those athletes, as well as Autumn Bailey, Alyssa Fitterer, uh, Rebecca Rivera, the Beltrans. It was a collective group of people. And I was fortunate enough to grow up in a gym with phenomenal volleyball players and phenomenal coaches. So it just really sparked my love for that competitiveness within the game um, at a young age. And Defense has earned a reputation here in Ontario, at least for big way like recruiting to the NCAA I think a lot of their athletes look there and with how much they compete there so 
were you honestly looking at NCAA indoor first or with, with Maddie bringing you out to the beach? Is that when you got the bug for the beach or at what point did you start thinking like next level and which, which avenue you were going to pursue? I, I never really quite knew and I'm sure we'll get into this, but that's why we went to three schools. <laughs> I, I was kind of persuaded to choose at a really young age. And, you know, at the time I thought my coaches know best, listen to them. Um, you don't really know what you're talking about as a person, like an individual self. And so I did look at a lot of NCAA schools to pursue indoor. I um, was looking at Indiana, Columbia, Cornell, Michigan State, a lot of good programs. And for some reason, I just couldn't commit to going on these recruiting trips. The only recruiting trip I did go on was to Columbia. Um, just because, I mean, why would you not want to go to Columbia? <laughs> so, yeah, but something, you know, I knew that my heart was on the sand, so I couldn't go and really dive into that indoor experience full-heartedly. So I decided to stay back and uh, try to pursue both beach and indoor, and that's kind of why I chose back, because I was able to still play beach volleyball um, around the GTA. I wasn't that far. It was just in Hamilton. So. Right. And we'll probably jump back and forth a little bit, but uh, I think what people might forget about you is when you committed to play at university indoors, you had already represented Canada at, at worlds, right? Like you've had already been to a few times. Cause I think you've been to five or six world championships. I think it counted. So how young were you when you got the chance to represent Canada? And then what was kind of your first impression of international volleyball to kind of get you hooked on what the next level could be? So my first, I don't know what my first real international tournament was, but the ones that stick out the most were my first world championships in Cyprus with Julie Longman and Tia Doramiric and Ali Woolley. Those were the four girls that got to compete for Canada at that tournament. And then that was an under-19 world championship. And then my first real FIVB event was with Victoria Altamar. And we traveled to Thailand. And I think I was maybe 16, 17 years old. Which now looking back at it, my mom is insane for letting me go to Thailand with someone who's like not that much older than I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, V's a good friend of the show, but uh, I, I don't think she's much older than you or even that much more mature at that time to send you both on a plane to Thailand to play volleyball. Like even if she was my age now, I'm currently, I'll be 25 next month. I would not take a 16-year-old or 17-year-old to Thailand by myself. Right. <laughs> what? what a gem. What a girl. My mom would only trust Victoria Altamar to do that. True, true. She is a very genuine person. So if yeah, if you're going to go to a, you know, a different continent with a person, that's a good pick. Absolutely. So, okay, let, let's go indoor first, because I think the path is going to be more clear there where we can go beach. So you go to McMaster, you, you tear it up, you're, you're a first team all star, you're rookie of the year, you guys, you take down the league. So did you have expectations going into Mac? Like, what was your recruiting process? Because uh, I think in Ontario, we kind of label athletes pretty quickly about, oh, they're a beach athlete or they're an indoor athlete, or maybe some Ontario schools may have thought you were going to the NCAA and didn't recruit you, right? So what was your impression with Mac and what other schools were you considering? So funny enough, I really only sat down with Justin Reed at Ryerson. Um, and he sat me down, and I remember this so vividly in his office, he sat me down with a calendar and was like, you can play beach on these days, you can train indoor these days. He was so accommodating um, and just, you know, loved that I was so passionate about all of these different sports and all these different avenues. And that's something for me that was really appealing to Ryerson, um, just because I had coaches throughout my whole life telling me to pick and choose. Mm -hmm. So it was really refreshing. Um, after that conversation, I thought that I was just going to strictly do beach. I didn't even think I was going to play in university, play indoor at all. And I remember visiting my sister, my older sister who played soccer at McMaster and just falling in love with the school and just kind of the energy of the people and the athletic department. And it was kind of late in the recruiting game. And I had emailed Tim Lukes and I said, Hey Tim, um, is it okay if I come to open tryouts? I know that you're probably all filled up, you know, your roster's full all that good stuff. And luckily he had a spot for me and he was like, you do not have to come to open tryouts. I was like, okay, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I haven't touched an indoor ball in forever. Cause I had taken my few year indoor off. So it had been a long time since I had touched an indoor ball. Yeah. I forgot about that. That's a really good point. So was the level that much more of a jump because you just haven't been playing? Like, uh, I'm not going to argue that you weren't in like, the, the fitness wasn't going to be a problem, but the skills are different enough that I think making the jump would be a little bit different, right? Yeah, it was definitely different. I mean, 
it's kind of like riding a bike. The sports are very similar, but you know, they have their major differences. I found that I got into it relatively quickly. I didn't feel like there was that big of a gap, but I was definitely freaking out internally because I was like, I haven't played in a year. Um, and you're jumping from playing in OVA to then playing in university. So that jump in itself is quite extensive. And in my year, my first year of university, you were going up against Brandy and Mel and, you know, Rachel Cockrell and Taylor Pischke. So there were some big names that were playing in the CIS that year. So I was quite nervous. Nice. And then how did you like to personally think of expectations going in? Like, did you expect to start? Did you expect to kind of take over in final four that year? Like how, what was your own process of going to Mac? Like, was there expectation to win the league that year? Like how did, how did goals and expectations come apart with you working with uh, the Marauders? So I think my own expectation was I knew that our team was talented enough to win the championship, win OUAs. Um, but everyone else didn't think that we had it in us. So maybe it was just like a sneaky win. I don't really know. But what was good about that was I had like Lauren Master Luigi, um, who played at defense on the team already. And we luckily got a really great setter who came in, um, Kayla Ng, who came in as our setter. So we were really fit to just have a whole bunch of really stellar athletes that year, um, as well as my recruiting class was phenomenal. So I think that we internally had the expectation, but I don't think anybody in the league thought that we were going to win. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And then going to nationals, did that kind of catch up with the team was just, I think Ontario's done really well recently, but in that era, Ontario wasn't really known for even getting past the quarterfinals at CIS. So what was the, the mood when you won Ontario and went to nationals? We were super stoked when Ontario um, especially because the Mac men did as well that year. It was just a huge family affair, it felt like. But Nationals for me is a big blur. I don't actually even remember a single point from Nationals or who we played. So I'm going to do a terrible job of answering that question. <laughs> um, but I do remember watching Taylor Pischke and Rachel Cockrell win. So that was exciting. And I just found out Anna Dunswin was also at that Nationals. Oh, Dalhousie would have been there. You're right. Yeah. So her, myself, and Taylor, we all reminisced um, about a month and a half ago about it. <laughs> because awesome. we didn't know really, at that point, we were all just our own individual person. Right. And now, training partner. Awesome. Awesome. And I think maybe why some of it is a blur, because you mentioned you did play for three schools. So when did the Long Beach option come together? Like, was that going to be an opportunity to play beach and indoor? And that was going to meet your goals a little bit more than what Ontario could offer at the time? Uh, like, were they recruiting you? Did you message their coach? Like, how did the, the next step to go to a different school happen? So I remember sitting down on the couch at McMaster, just at a friend's house. And I had a really good conversation with Jory Mantha who was like, what are you doing playing in the OUA? He was like, you need to go to the NCAA right now. He does not remember this conversation at all, I'm sure. Just because it was so irrelevant to him. Like, it was just like a passing conversation. And that, for me, because, like, I idolized Jory so much, and I, you know, he's such a stellar athlete himself, I really just took a step back, and I was like, okay, how am I going to be the most challenged next year? Like, what do I want? Um, do I want to play beach and indoor? Do I want to be able to pursue those both? you know, um, at a really high level program in the U S like, what did I want? So I created a terrible highlight video and I sent it out to a lot of California schools that offered both programs, both beach and indoor. And I finally heard response back from Brian Gimbalero at Long Beach state. And he offered me a full ride just via my YouTube video. Nice. I'm just the Justin Bieber of the football world. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. So it was that simple, eh? That you you were kind of in between if you were even going to pursue indoor volleyball, and then all of a sudden you win a league championship, and you're off to the NCAA. Um, yeah, but I, I think, think it helped that so, I had won the world championships that summer, like leading into my second year. So I think that definitely was a little bit of a bonus. Nice, nice. And I think some people may forget your your year Long Beach because of all the things you accomplished at USC. So. What can you tell us about your arrival there and kind of being a Canadian in the NCAA and so far from home? Like, what was your year at Long Beach like before you you made the choice to transfer once more? Um, it was definitely interesting. I mean, I love how serious they take their athletics. Um, so that for me was a huge bonus. 
it, nothing will get you prepared for double days. So anyone listening to this who is being recruited to the NCAA, prepare yourself. If you can get through double days, you can get through anything. But no, I had a good experience at the beginning of it. I, you know, was recruited to play both beach and indoor, but predominantly beach. But I was on an indoor scholarship because you could offer more scholarships on the indoor side. So I had expectations to try to fight for a starting position. I ended up getting that starting spot, which was awesome. I played both left side and right side. Then I got through into the middle in the second round of the NCAA tournament against UCLA. And it was very traumatic, (laughs) but we won't go there. But no, we had a really successful season. We went 16-0 and in conference, which was amazing. And then we lost in the second round of the NCAA tournament. So it was, it was a really good experience in terms of volleyball. Brian Gimalero is a very, very good technical coach. He, I learned a lot about the technical game from him. The rest of it was a little bit challenging for me to navigate. Just the dynamics with the team. And I had some you know, issues with Brian as a coach. So I just felt like I was not the happiest person. And, you know, I believe that you're not stuck in anywhere that you are. Like you can always get out um, and find a way to better yourself or be in an environment that you can, you know, flourish completely. So I reached out to Anna Collier at USC and, you know, had a conversation with her. And luckily enough, she had some money for me and I went out to USC and never looked back. Now, was that conversation just between you two, or did you have a sense that like your your cycle of athletes may have also name dropped a little bit? Because just looking at some of your world results, like Sarah Hughes was at some of your youth world championships. I think your partner, you went on to play with Alexis. She would have been at some of these competitions. Like, was it just as simple as you were a world champion and you wanted to transfer, or do you feel like there was some peer support there as well? For sure, there was peer support. I mean, I initially reached out to Alexa. Her and I became friends when I went to the UMAG Croatia World Championships. And I reached out to her when I was looking to transfer. Um, I had narrowed it down to a couple of schools that I was interested in. And I just reached out to see if she thought I would like the school, like the program, how the coaching staff was. You know, um, I had known Sarah Hughes and Kelly Clays for a little bit. We weren't super good friends at the time. But, you know, at least I had some people that were in my corner that could vouch for me. And then Anna Collier was at... uh, the under 23 world championships in Poland. So her and I were able to connect and, you know, have a relationship outside of collegiate volleyball. So I think that definitely helped as well. Nice, nice. And just for me and the listeners, because you were transferring OUA to NCAA and then technically from indoor to beach, is that why you never had to sit? Like, I'm just wondering how the transfer rules, like, would you say it was a pretty smooth process or were there some bumps in the road every time you kind of switched what school you're at? Um, in terms of athletics and eligibility to play, I never had to sit out because transferring from indoor to beach is a different sport. So I never had to sit out in that regard. Academically, it was difficult because I had gone to three schools. So, you know, I had to go into a pretty generic undergrad. Other than that, it was pretty seamless. Awesome. Awesome. And then just to quickly circle back to try to get to the same point in time here. So while you were doing all that focus on indoor at the university level, you, you already mentioned that you were playing some youth world stuff. You had gone to Canada games. So what was kind of the point that you thought like beach could be like a serious thing? Cause I think your timing was really, really well placed in a sense that like the NCAA was getting serious where you were kind of the first real generation to have NCAA championships and the level was really competitive. So for you going from like a, a youth worlds to a Canada games to then finally going NCAA beach, like just how was that journey for you as far as like seeing what the next level of our sport could be? Yeah. I mean, I am a fortunate um, age demographic. Like I think my route and my pathway, um, I've been very fortunate to have, you know, really supportive partners and really great opportunities present themselves to me. And obviously I've capitalized on a lot of these opportunities, but I think that I am just in the right age group to really explore what beach has to offer. So yeah, I remember having a conversation with Leonard, actually Leonard Krapp, and this was at our first world championships in Halifax. And this is when Canada didn't really do too well at the youth world championships. You know, we get excited if we make it out of the pool. That was like when I first entered the beach world, that's what the you know standard and the objective was. And he asked us at the beginning of the tournament, like, what do you want? Like, what's your goal in this tournament? And I was like, well, I really just want to make it out of my pool. And he was like, well, then why don't you go home? <laughs> he was like, why are you even at this tournament? If you're not here to win this tournament, what are you doing here? And that for me just like sparked 
like his confidence in us. I don't even know if it was like a personal confidence. If he thought that, you know, Julie and I could actually take the tournament. But for me, it just sparked in my head, like, okay, like maybe that is the mentality you have to go into everything with. And yeah, I think that was like the real first tournament that I realized like, okay, I'm in the right spot at the right time. And then from then on, it just kind of was a trajectory upwards. Now, when we had John May on the show, who you know very well, uh, he kind of talked about this this ignition in beach volleyball where, you know, when, when Jamie and Christina won a championship, like it wasn't too long after that, like Heather and Sarah started really doing well, Taylor and Melissa, like there was just kind of like a, a look around saying, well, if they can do it, I can do it. So I'm wondering with the youth stuff, like you had some solid results, like, and don't get me wrong, but like winning worlds is a big deal. Did, did Garrett and Sam have any influence on that? Or were you mostly focused on the women's side and just improving, like turning a ninth into a fourth or trying to get on the podium, like little things like that? Like, cause you mentioned when Canada going to youth worlds, you're, you're dead, right? Getting out of pool used to be a big accomplishment where there was a phase there with yourself and Tia and Grant and Aaron and Garrett and whoever else he was playing with it. Like, Medals started becoming an expectation, right? Yeah. Hmm. I think that, you know, Garrett and Sam winning that world championship, that was a little bit before I was really on the scene, but it was doable. It was when Grant and Aaron won their first bronze medal that I was like, okay, we're all in the same age group, kind of. At the time, I was like, okay, if they could do it, we could do it. And it was just kind of where, like, I was focused on bettering each result when I went to a world championship. So started out with a 17, then you finished with a 9, then... You slowly make your way up and finally, you know, after, I can't remember which tournament it was, but I had never made it past a, a pre-quarter or a quarter. And then T and I made it to the finals and won. So it was, it was, it was crazy. And I felt like all of the results were in a very short period of time for all of those youth athletes. Nice, nice. And I've had this argument behind closed doors with a, a lot of people that think like Youth Worlds doesn't really transfer to the main draw and there's no correlation, blah, 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 blah. But when you actually take a deep dive, I think there is because your year, like you played against one of the Swiss girls who was just in the semis at World Championship, like Duda was there. Uh, you played against a really good Poland team. Like there, there's athletes all through the Youth Championship who go on to play Worlds. Obviously, not everyone's going to do it. I don't think any sport has that type of pyramid where like if you make the NCAA you're going pro or anything like that right so but with your own experience did youth worlds actually help you prepare for the world tour or is that just such a big jump and maybe why not everybody transfers oh I think absolutely it is I think that especially for Canadians because don't have a domestic tour you just learn how to compete under pressure and a lot of other countries get that in their domestic tour whereas we go out the world tour and the first time that we're getting that real pressure is in the qualification match when you've flown to thailand and you have one match and if you don't win you don't know where you're sleeping you don't know what you're eating right there's a lot of other things that come about when you're on tour now so i think going through those youth championship experiences i learned how to like do little things like um go and eat and eat with just you and your partner because you're that serious you're not there for social time if you're there to win a tournament um, it's how to go to a technical meeting, how to, it's the little things outside of volleyball that you learn that are really important that really just help you focus on the actual volleyball part. And then, like you said, I don't know whether it was just my age group, but there are so many athletes that I had gone to the previous youth world championships with that are now on tour. And we joke and laugh about like events that have happened when we were 15 years old or 14 years old for Duda. You know what I mean? <laughs> Or Judah was 12. Um, but no, there's a lot, a lot of women, at least, that I had the pleasure of playing with um, at the Youth World Championships. So just to, again, we're jumping around a little bit, but it should all make sense in the timeline to our listeners here. So <laughs> in focusing on USC now, did World Championships just give you a lot of confidence that you could play at that level? Because... Again, I was looking at some of the rosters you played on. Obviously, Clays and Hughes, as soon as they left the NCAA, they were on fire and just taking over the main draw. And you've also played with like Wheeler and Cannon, who have represented their country. You had a record of 103 and 3. Like the, the NCAA is tough and there's a lot of good teams, but did you have the confidence that you could arrive on day one and just and contribute and take over? I think that I knew that we could do it just within the first couple of weeks of training with everybody. Because again, the like whole beach dynamic as a team was new to me, but I don't think that winning the world championships gave me a little bit of extra confidence. I uh, didn't actually really get a chance to celebrate it because I left for school right away. And I'm not the kind of person that like walks up to someone and I'm like, Hey, guess what? I'm a world champion. <laughs> so it's really new. Like it wasn't until my 
senior year at SC that people actually knew that I won Worlds. Wow. Because it just came up in conversation and I never felt like it was that important. So I think that I naturally am a pretty confident person. I hope that doesn't sound too obnoxious. Um, but just being able to compete and train with, you know, the Sarah Hughes, the Kelly Clays, the Nick Martins, the Therese Cannons, the Allie Wheelers, I realized that our team was amazing and I was amongst some of the best in collegiate volleyball and then, you know, going further on the world tour um, that I was like, okay, hey, we can take home a couple of national championships. Now, I'm always fascinated like this. This is one of the questions that I try to ask a lot of people because there's no real clear answer. And I'm always fascinated how people think about this. So one example of goal setting would be like a Penn State, Tori Grell said, like when they lifted weights on Tuesday, they were lifting weights to win a national championship. Like it was talked about every day. You weren't going to be shied away or confused. Like you were all in to win a national championship. So with you winning three NCAA championships and, and personally going 103 and three, like did the Trojans think like, okay, we're going to win nationals every year? Or what was your, are you more leaning on like the process side? Or are you in expectations and outcome side? Like where do you fall in that? And, and where was the rest of the squad with their goals? I think that Anna Collier, my coach at USC, did a really good job of bringing everyone down to earth after we won the first national championship. So I think it was really important because you know, we knew that we had a target on our back, but instead of being nervous about it, we just kind of embraced it as a challenge. Um, and yeah, I mean, we had little things here and there, but the overarching objective was just to get 1% better every day at practice. And that's something that I even tell my girls now when I coach, it's something that Anna would tell us all of the time. It doesn't matter what's going on. You just have to get 1% better than you were yesterday. So we didn't really talk too much about national championships or Gulf Shores or anything like that. Of course, that was, you know, what we were prepping for. But every single year that we would have our first meeting, it was, this is a new team and this team hasn't won anything. So that's it. You guys have to play like you haven't won anything. And that's kind of something that we embraced as a team and as a collective. And I think it worked out for the best for us. Awesome. And I think that 1% better thing is, is awesome. But can you explain the action of it because I think you know you see it on people's warm-up shirts or they might claim that's like their team motto but <laughs> to me unless you can actually apply action to that attitude it doesn't really mean a lot so going into practice like what did that mean to you like was it clear like laid out what you guys are going to be working on that day or what your team needed to improve on like how did you get the most out of that mantra that the team had I mean we never really went in knowing what the full practice plan was like we just knew that it was going to be really intense because it always was um, so the 1% better really just was an individual like dictation. Like it had to be on you to decide what you were going to focus on to get that 1% better. So in the back of my mind, it was always like, okay, well, this isn't my end objective. My end objective is going to the Olympics and winning a gold medal for Canada. So what do I have to do in this practice to better myself just a little bit so that I'm closer to that end goal? So whether that was, you know, something technical in terms of passing or setting or whatever it happened to be. It was just focusing solely on that in terms of what I could critique. And then the rest of it, I just had to be super competitive and, uh, you know, embrace whatever else was going on in practice. And you mentioned earlier that like the NCAA and how serious they take sports and, you know, the, the way media is involved and things like that. I'm wondering when you, you landed a school like USC was there just some awesome experiences with like rivalry games where you know that like this week I'm going to be fired up and that little bit extra because we're playing, you know, UCLA or somebody like how did, how did you feel going into those games? Because playing in California, like the center of beach volleyball for them, there, there must have been some moments where you're just like extra fired up and it doesn't feel like a long season when you're playing so and so. Right. Oh, absolutely. And we had quite a few rivalries. Um, well, we had our cross down rivals, which is just kind of school based. It's not necessarily beach volleyball based, but UCLA. Um, so we were always super fired up about that because there actually is a crosstown cup that's given out as to which school beat the other school by how much. So the years that I were there, we won the crosstown cup. So fight on. <laughs> um, but yeah, I remember this experience was actually kind of traumatizing, but Anna will laugh about it. We played Pepperdine at Zuma Beach. So on their home turf and Anna has some sort of vendetta with the Pepperdine coach. And um, we had won on their turf for the first time ever. They had never lost at Zuma Beach. 
and it was just myself and my friend Lorna in the back of the USC van. Anna rolls down the windows and plays We Are the Champions and just laps the parking lot. <laughs> no shame, no nothing. Everyone is still there. She does not care. Like, it is full windows down, and I'm in the back of the seat like, please no one see that I'm in here. <laughs> I love the emotional attachment that the, some of these rivalries have, even at, like, a university level. That's amazing. It just, it makes you so... It just makes the experience so much better because you're not only just playing volleyball, you're you're playing for your teammates, you're playing for your coaches, but you're playing for your school. It's like a huge level of sense of pride. Um, and I never thought that I would be a person who takes that rivalry back home. Once I left the school, I was going to be like, oh, I'm done. But now still, like if UFC is playing UCLA in any sport, I'm immediately invested. <laughs> so... Now, one conversation you and I have had at the beach before is just I'm trying to understand the ranking system. And, and you may have hinted a little bit here that, you know, with the internal ranking system of, of listing your teams one through five, that sometimes you in the two spot at USC would actually play teams better teams because they would deliberately like fudge their internal rankings or the way they listed their teams. So as a player, were you aware of that or were you just so focused on what your dual match was going to be? Because I think... It is kind of a silly system in a way that coaches can manipulate it that much, but it is the reality that like you're you're going to get some teams' best games, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, Anna did a really good job of playing the honor system, so she never changed our lineups unless there was injury. It was always very very clear. All of the schools knew it, and she was like, "Well, this is our lineup. I will show you this months in advance, and you're still not going to beat us." That was her mentality. So there was one tournament when I was in Hawaii. We played Florida State four times, and I never played the same two pair, Wow, which is hilarious. The rule is you're supposed to be able to go back to practice and play off for that position internally, like within your team. So it was kind of funny that I ended up playing four different uh, two spots for Florida State. But yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, but you just can't think too much of it. At the end of the day, like my team was so, so skilled. You know, our fives pair could have been a one pair at another team at another school. So we were so confident in what our abilities were that it didn't really matter in terms of like who was putting who up against what number. So nice, nice. And we've had Alex and Lee on the show and they've explained like the mood at Gulf Shores and how it actually feels like special with the courts there and the cameras. So what was your first impression of going there and just seeing, again, the layout of the venue, the crowds, the the extra media of attention? Like. How, how well does uh, the NCAA do nationals, in your opinion? So well. Gulf Shores, it's terrible to get to. It is the worst place to fly, but it is gorgeous. The sand is amazing. The way that they run it is very professional. They have media day. You, you just feel a little bit more professional and celebrity, which is pretty cool because it is a big accomplishment. But no, having all of the cameras there was awesome. The last year that I was there was when they introduced the big jumbotron with all of the scores before they had just announced it. So you could only hear it once, but it's really hard to not focus on your other teammates playing and the score while you're in your match. So when all of the matches are going on, you could be like, oh no, we're losing on court three, we're losing on court five, like it's tight on court one, I really got to win this. Like it can put so much pressure on you. So it was really difficult to force yourselves to forget about that. But other than that, it's a great experience. Gulf Shores really knows how to put on a national championship. Yeah, I think that's my only knock on the NCAA system is at the OVA one year we were watching you play and then this horn goes off and your match was still going. But because USC, I guess, had won three on the other court, she's like, no, like they won game over. Like that you can leave individual matches unplayed technically, right? Oh, yeah. The only match that I actually finished at nationals, well, at least in the finals, was my first year because they did each individual flight separately. So they just picked out of a hat and mine happened to go first. But other than that, they had staggered the times of, you know, whatever the matches. Um, but yeah, the rest of the games, I did not finish. I didn't finish one single final or semifinal match other than the initial one when I was in my sophomore year. <laughs> That's awesome. The horn would just go off and everyone's celebrating on the court. And I'm like, sweet guys, enjoy. Like, <laughs> Enjoy your I'm halfway through the second set here. Thanks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We actually got in trouble, though, um, when we were playing one of the teams because we had won a really close semifinal. And I just we just had like run off the court to go celebrate with our team. And they found that it was really poor sportsmanship because we didn't shake hands. 
And I was like, I had to go apologize afterwards. I was like, there's no bad intentions. I'm so sorry. You know, we just got so excited, so overwhelmed that we didn't even put into consideration that that could be perceived as rude. So then in my last year, when we were there, the horn goes off and we had to shake everyone's hand and the celebration was already over. So, oh man, <laughs> I know it's, um, it's a hard line, but yeah. So it was interesting to hear that like, you, you weren't walking around campus saying you're a world champion. Anyone knows, you knows that you weren't going to do that. Right. So with you then, you know, being a three-time NCAA champion, did that give you a boost that you could play on the world tour? Or again, is it just such a big jump that you kind of had to like gather again and like, be ready to be a professional athlete. Like I'm wondering as you, every time you take this extra step in beach volleyball, is the next level just that much more impressive than the last one you were at? I think for me, just like accolades and accomplishments don't really determine all that much. And I know that sounds super weird, but it's almost a feeling of belonging. That's more important. So for me, it wasn't until this past year, the end of this FIVB season that I like looked at myself and I was like, okay, I could do this. Like I can actually hang with some of these people. Of course, I'm nowhere near close to what I would like to be or, you know, be at the absolute top level, but you have to internally believe and have that self-confidence of like you belong. And I don't think that comes because of, you know, gold medals or rings or anything like that. It's just doing it and going through those, those experiences. Yeah, let, let's pull on that because that's a conversation you and I have had like a couple times debriefing events. And when you say belong on tour, what contributes to that in your own mindset? Like, what does it really take to be like a professional player? Because I think when we had like John Mayer on the show, he uses professional as a compliment because there are people in our sport who aren't very professional, right? So when you say right. like you're, you're a main draw player, like what are some things that go into that for you in your own mindset? That's a good question. Um, I think there's a big difference between, especially in Canada, because we don't get to see a lot of our professional athletes and our national team athletes compete on a regular basis that I would do a lot of, I would watch a lot of film when I was growing up and you can't really gauge what's happening on film. Like you can, but you don't really know until you experience it. And I'd never been to an FIVB as a spectator. I had really only ever been to you know, a national championships at Ashbridge's, which is great, but it's not the same level. So for me, it was just this like outrageous idea and, you know, everyone's hitting the ball super hard. And it just, it seemed a little bit out of reach because I was never physically there to experience it for myself. And then finally, when I, you know, got to go on tour and I would lose in the qualification, I would stay for the remainder of the tournament to watch what these teams were doing. I would stay until the final. And then I started to realize, like, they're not doing anything that's much different than what I'm doing. It's just they're doing it at a more proficient rate than I'm doing it. So I think that for me is when I started to feel like I belong. It's like they're not doing anything that's crazy. It's just they're way better and more consistent at doing it than I am currently. Um, so that for me was when I kind of shifted my mindset to be like, okay, I can actually do this. Yeah, that might sound easy to our listeners. Just like, oh, yeah, you stay till the end of the tournament. But that's costing you your own money. And what I found in my own experience is it's uncomfortable. Like I've been at tournaments and your flights booked to go down like when the tournament's over because you plan on being there a while. And then you you get this early exit and it just, it sucks. Like I didn't even want to like go for dinner. I didn't want to be around other teams who were winning because they're happy. Like how did you kind of build that into your own game that you're like, even though this might be uncomfortable, I'm going to stay and I'm going to watch other teams and I'm going to soak in the environment a little bit. Yeah, I mean... The thing is, and it's, it's, I think it's something that you really have to experience for yourself when on tour is when you lose, everyone loses, you know, there's only one winner at the end of the tournament. And once you can put your ego away and realize that nobody cares that you lost, nobody is thinking about you, right? Like if I got crushed in a qualification match, it's not like I would go to dinner and all the players would be like, haha, she's losing. Nobody cares. They're all focused on what they're, they're doing themselves. So as soon as you can recognize that and realize, one, nobody's thinking about you, two, everyone loses and it's okay, you feel a lot better staying around and you don't feel like shameful for it and you can actually really embrace the environment and really open yourself up to learning. Um, I remember Leonard was huge on that. He would force us to watch the team that we just lost to as far as they would go in the tournament. Um, and it was super painful because you're like, wow, these people aren't even that good. How could I lose? You make up all these excuses. Um, but it's a really, really good learning opportunity 
to figure out why you lost and why they're successful and how you can better your next experience. Nice, nice. And then again, just looking at your your history of uh, FIB events, I think I've asked other guests this. It's an easy answer to try to put the young people with the vet, but I'm wondering when you played with V for that event or you were around Jamie Broder and now around Taylor, like I'll give Taylor credit. She's played on the tour a long time, even though you guys are technically peers, right? But she is a little bit older and played a lot. Yeah. Like what can a vet actually give to a youth athlete in our sport? Because sometimes it's surface level to say like, oh, they can give them experience. Well, what are some actual actionable things? Like did V really show you how to travel or was Jamie really good in those clutch moments? Like what were some actual things that you could take away from playing with these experienced partners that you've had? Yeah, I think learning how to travel is huge. Um, and that's something that you're not just taught, like it's through experience. Um, I would also say I was really fortunate to have older, more vet, vet partners throughout my career, like even still. Um, there's something about playing with somebody who has done it before where you feel, especially for me, safer to make mistakes knowing that they're going to make up for it in their own way. So I never felt pressure from Jamie for example, to like side out at a hundred percent proficiency because I knew that, you know what, if I take this risk to grow as a player and I make an error, that's okay. She's not going to penalize me for that. She's going to make, make it up with a sweet dig that we're going to earn that point back. So for me, when I play with a vet, that's kind of what I'm looking for, especially because up until last year, I never really felt like I was a hundred percent belonging on tour. So I needed those moments to kind of like be vulnerable be able to make mistakes and again, take those calculated risks without feeling nervous that we were you know, going to lose and have to sleep on the floor of some hotel. And again, just looking at your career and, and the system you've gone through, what advice can you give to young athletes just about like the trial system? Like I, I like our system a little bit in sense where it's pretty evaluation friendly. If you win the tournament, you get to go. Like I, I could argue that maybe the second team should be a nomination, but I like the idea that like you can win your spot and go to an Orsica or a youth world championships or things like that. Right. So, but those can be pretty stressful knowing that you have to win the event. Right. So in your career, was that just accepting for you that that's just the way beach volleyball likes to run in and I'm here to win the tournament or how did you find progressing through that? And then what advice would you give to like a younger player who might be stressed out about this, this system we have? Um, I think it's a really great system because you, if you are having the opportunity to represent the country, you should fight for it. And I think that winning the trials is a great way to put pressure on athletes and kind of simulate what they're going to experience there. So I think it's a great learning opportunity. It's very stressful, but it doesn't need to be because it's just keeping the balloon off the floor. <laughs> that for me was like a huge thing. And I know it sounds so ridiculous, but when you really put things back into perspective, it makes everything else seem less stressful. So for me, anytime I got, you know, really nervous about a trials or about a qualification match or anything like that, I would say to myself, like, you are playing keep the balloon off the floor with your best friend country. Like, this is the most chill job ever. So it's not taking away or like scapegoating how serious the moment is, but it's just kind of putting things back into perspective and realizing, like, I'm still going to be okay if I don't find success in this. Um, but in terms of the trials, I loved the competitiveness of it. And I think that's something that Canadian athletes don't always get. And it's a really good opportunity to learn how to navigate that. Now, we're a pretty lighthearted podcast. Like, I love good stories. And I just like showcasing what people have accomplished in our sport and the personalities. But, you know, sometimes we have to ask the serious question. So if we're ever going to be a serious show, I, I do have to ask this. Yeah. You you optically get labeled sometimes as a difficult athlete, which I, I don't think is fair. But, but I'll be honest, when I was at the OVA, like you, you were a pretty tough youth athlete to be around where I, I could see you being intimidating to your peer group. Right. So now that I've got to coach you and work with you, I, I know that's not true. But I'm wondering, how did you deal with that with like people having an impression of you that wasn't probably accurate to what your identity was or who you felt you were? Right. Like, how have you navigated those situations? Because like I said, I think you've been mislabeled, but it's just something that people may have an opinion of you. Right. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of, like, being a coached athlete, I think I can definitely be difficult, or at least I could when I was younger. And I have heard that from a lot of different coaches. Like, I heard that from my TMO coaches, and then when I went to McMaster, I actually, this is, this is going to sound terrible, but um, I was so competitive, and that, like, drive to win, 
um, I was never super rude, but my expectation of my peers was always to give this amount of effort that I'm giving. And I actually almost got suspended from the McMaster team because too competitive. And then got me down in the locker room and everyone ran around the room and pretty much said like one thing they didn't like about me, which was the best way to go about it. But I understand what Tim was trying to do. He was trying to like put everyone in an environment where we could have an open conversation. It was just nobody was there to actually like drive the conversation. Luckily enough, I'm a pretty tough person, so it didn't really phase me too much. Yeah. And then when I went to USC, it was similar. I mean, I had pretty difficult partnerships when I was there. So I wasn't always, you know, happy-go-lucky self that you'll see that I am off of the court. And I had a conversation with Dane Blenton, who was our volunteer assistant at the time, and now he's the head coach. And he was like, you think like a guy. And I was like, no, there's no gender in this sport. Like, it should just be an elite athlete mentality. It does not have to be gender biased. And so that for me is just how I view myself. I just see it as like having high expectations of people that I'm surrounding myself with. Um, But I can understand how that could be intimidating for sure. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's so funny that you bring up the gender thing because obviously with with the Chicago Bulls documentary coming out, and I'm a huge Kobe Bryant fan, and like if Kobe and MJ can punch a teammate in the face, and instead of being labeled a jerk, they're labeled a competitor. Why are you getting yelled at for being competitive and too serious in drills? It, it, it's kind of funny. So with you entering right. the, the the coaching world and having gone through this experience, like how how would you guide athletes through this based on your own experience or stuff that you've seen? Because yeah, it is interesting that like we're in a competitive sport and, and wins count, but you've been labeled as like taking that too far, which is odd to me. Yeah. Um, now that I'm a coach, I really appreciate athletes that are very competitive, but what I learned while I was at SC, because everyone there was the amount of arguments that we had that Anna would just sit back because, and she'd laugh because we were so, so competitive. It was almost hilarious. Um, is you have to create a way, or sorry, you have to find a way to cultivate an environment where athletes are comfortable being that competitive, but in a learning way or in a way that they can be vulnerable and still grow, which is really hard to do as a coach. Um, but I'm finding that that's the best way to go about it. It's not, you know, shaming someone for not being loud or thinking that, you know, that they're being rude or that they're, you know, putting off this like standoff vibe because they're not talking or they're not doing backflips for silly points and things like that. I feel like it's really difficult to figure out how to cultivate that environment. But as a coach now, I, you know, appreciate anyone who's super competitive, but not at the expense of another athlete's development. Yeah, that's a good point about the culture. So either what would you do at USC or what would you do now? Because again, to name drop another guest, I, I think this is awesome and I'll use it for my teams from now on. When Josh Binstock was at U of T and they used to get on each other, like the culture there was if you're the one holding the grudge, you're the jerk. Like if you're the one who can't let go of what just happened on the court and go be friends and go out for dinner or, or live with your teammates, then that's yeah. on you to let it go versus like, I'm not a jerk because I said you touched the net and you didn't and we argued. Like that doesn't make me the bad person. That makes me the competitor for calling you out. And I think that was a fascinating culture that Josh shared. So again, with your own performance, like, I, I like the idea of not taking it too far at the the experience of some other athlete, but where do you kind of draw the line of where the culture takes over? Hmm. Let me think about that one. Like were there were there times where you hated Kelly and Sarah and the other USC girls and it went Absolutely. beyond practice? Or could Absolutely. you go to the team room and be over it? No, over it. As soon as you step off the court, that's where things like go to die. Like you anything that happens on the court stays on the court. And I think it's really hard to find athletes who really buy into that. But that competitiveness between you and your teammates is only going to make you better as long as you don't take it off of the court. Because as soon as you do that, it just ruins the whole team dynamic and the culture of the team. But the way that we were able to do that successfully was because we all had the same end objective. We all were on the same page. We all were on the bus. Like we were all ready for that national championship that everything else just didn't matter. Like me not liking my partner or me having issues with whoever, it didn't matter as long as everyone was on the right pathway and had that same goal to win. Nice. So winning for us just kind of superseded everything else. And I think that's where I get into trouble with partnerships and with, you know, group training or things like that is because my drive to win 
is always at a next level that sometimes I can get into trouble with it. Now, is there ever a chance where winning was kind of hiding the mood there? Like, let's say SC doesn't win a national championship, then does it boil over? Or do you think just because the the attitude was there that you were committed to winning it and the result was going to be the result, but you weren't going to then be blaming people if you didn't get the job done? Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think, I don't know how our team managed to like cultivate that environment, but even if we hadn't won or had been as successful as we were, the like grind and the, you know, the amount of effort and sweat and tears and like blood that we put into those seasons, they, it just made us like bonded forever. And I don't think that anyone would take any judgment off of the court and have it like be a grudge. Nice. At least for me, that's like my perception of it. Yeah. And then just to jump ahead once more, partnering with Taylor, I think the roadmap of how you both got here is pretty interesting with with Taylor playing with Christina, but then Christina obviously starts a family and then chooses not to come back. And then you bouncing around with a few different partners. Like how did you guys come together? And then what's it like been playing with her? Cause again, just from, from an outsider, like it, it looks like you're playing with joy. Like you guys enjoy being around each other. Like it's a fun environment, but your, your attitude towards the game and how competitive you are seems to match as well though. Yeah. I mean, so Taylor and I had been in conversation for a little bit and nothing ever super serious. We just, you know, wanted to, know what each other's like end goals were and seeing if the pathway made sense for the both of us. But when she wasn't sure what Christina's plans were, um, I was actually committed to Alex Boletto, who is a fellow Trojan as well. Um, really talented athlete. Her and I were committed and I was going to play defense. We go to Martinique at a Norseca. We ended up finishing second. We go to the Hague, had a great experience there. So we were kind of on that pathway. And then I knew Paletto was still in school and I said, no problem. You know, you go to school when you come back in the summer, we'll partner up and we'll, you know, get back on track. But during the winter months and during the fall, are you okay if I train with Taylor Pischke, who isn't sure what her partner is doing? And we might go to a few tournaments, see how it goes, all that good stuff. Taylor and I ended up having an amazing time training together. And I expressed to Alex, you know, how I was feeling about Taylor and myself and like, again, my relationship with Alex, I was very open and very honest. And Alex was the most understanding person ever. She understood it was a great opportunity for me to learn, to be in a really healthy partnership, to grow as a person and was like, dude, if you want to play with Taylor, all good, do your thing. Um, And that's kind of how Taylor and I got together. Nice, nice. And I think some casual fans might, you know, read a press release and go, oh, like, are Sophie and Taylor not on the national team? So can you just explain what went into your decision to now be an independent athlete? Because I think there's lots of layers in our sport, right? You could be a next-gen athlete with required training requirements. You can be a senior like Melissa and Sarah who represent Canada but train full-time in California. And then this third layer where you and Taylor are still very active in our professional athletes but not directly affiliated with like the national team services, I guess I would say. Right. So Taylor decided to go and uh, get her master's. So she is in Washington this coming year will be her last year of school. And, you know, when we were deciding whether or not to be a part of the national team or go independent, the like root part of it was we wanted to be able to dictate our own training um, and our own competition and not feel like there was anybody kind of like pulling our puppet strings. So that for us was liberating. We both, you know, really appreciate how independent the sport is. And it's hard to take independent people and put them in a training group and have so many rules and restrictions and, you know, um, kind of like limitations on them. And I think Taylor and I both, you know, I can kind of speak for her a little bit, were found that we would find more value and happiness in our lives overall if we were able to create our own schedules, create our own practice plans, work with, you know, her dad, um, who's our coach. So it was an easy decision for us even though financially it's, you know, not your smartest decision for us being able to feel free trumps any sort of like financial carding that the national team could provide us. Right. Right. And you did mention that you're, you are working with Garth. So that's probably the best pathway to do it. Like you mentioned, you're, you're giving up the finances, but you kind of built a team around you, right? Like you're still getting S and C, like you're still doing a lot of the planning, like you're still behaving like a, prof- a professional athlete. You're just not under the umbrella of volleyball Canada and the services we offer. Right. Right. So, you know, 
a big part, even when you are with the national team, is creating your bubble of people because the sport does get very lonely if it's just you and your partner. So, you know, finding for me, it was finding, you know, Reed Hall at the Athlete Matrix and their services there as well as their physio. Um, Nicole Sullivan is also amazing. And, you know, at MEND, who was our um, physio with the national team, I can always reach out to her and I know that she's a huge supporter as well. But it's creating a bubble of people that you can trust, that you can grow with. And we're fortunate to do that in an independent status where we don't have to really communicate who or why or kind of um, like justify why we're working with certain people. We're just working with them because, you know, they're going to better my experience overall as a person. So it's not having to justify our relationships with these people. That was also pretty liberating, choosing to be an independent athlete. Nice, nice. And, and a lot of our listeners are based in Canada. I was wondering if you could give a quick shout out to what uh, the group in Vancouver is doing with the Vancouver Open. You and Taylor were able to to play really well at that event and kind of take everything in. So with that being the, the best domestic tournament we have to offer, what can you say that, that they're doing so well and why it feels like a, a special event to all the players? It is such a fun event. I have heard about it and people rave about it for years. Finally, Taylor and I decided to do it. The timing worked out well. It feels awesome being able to play in Canada with spectators who, one, appreciate the sport, have knowledge for the sport, but are so invested. It's honestly nothing like I've ever played. I've never played in something like that stadium ever before. They, it's just the cultivation of environment, which is so cool. I don't know how to explain it unless you're there. But again, playing on your home turf with people who genuinely care about you, genuinely care about the sport, and who are willing to grow the game. Um, it's, it's so incredible. Kudos to them. It's an awesome event. Yeah. I think you could almost make the argument that they did such a good job last year that like Edmonton was almost a letdown just based on like how unlucky we were with the weather in Edmonton and just the, the venue not being like top tier on the side courts, like little things like that, that I think made Vancouver open that much more special. Right. Oh, 100%. And I know some of the um, like European athletes, who played in the Vancouver Open and then came to Edmonton, they were so excited about the Edmonton event because it was in Canada, and they had expectations like it would be the Vancouver Open. And then they get in, and they're being treated like for physio in a horse stable. And, you know, the side courts aren't really the greatest. The center court looks like a side court. You know, I'm so happy and privileged that Canada was able to put on an FIVB. I think that's so cool and really sparks volleyball's future in Canada. Um, I just wish that the standard was similar to the Vancouver Open because I know that a lot of the European athletes were kind of disappointed. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Definitely more appreciative than just knocking the Edmonton. I just found like the weather there to be so miserable, but it it was great that Canada could host a three-star and attract the teams we did. And and having Melissa and Sarah there after World Championships, like it was still a special event, but man, it was just a weird week in Edmonton. Weird week in Edmonton. The weather also was terrible. I think there was hail one afternoon. I'm just like, how is it July and there's hail? There was, <laughs> and I for sure played in it. <laughs> there's one video of Taylor and I playing against Japan, and we were in like full like leggings, long sleeves, and then somehow it's like long sleeves bathing suit, and then 10 minutes later it's like full bathing suit, and then it's visor bathing suit because it's pouring rain. I'm like, can we put on any other outfit in this one match? Oh, that's awesome. It so, was crazy. I think the, the volleyball fanatics are, are starting to add up the days here and they're going, well, wait a second. If Taylor is a full-time student in Washington and you're here in Toronto, how did you guys find the balance of still being like committed as a partnership and making sure that like you're still getting your lifts in and getting your touches in with your training group, but still connected to her? Like, How was like the long-distance beach partnership for you this year? Um, honestly, it hasn't been too much of a challenge because Taylor and I are just really good friends. So we don't really talk about volleyball all that much, which is really refreshing because volleyball players love to talk about volleyball. Um, Yeah, I just think that we both support each other outside of volleyball, which is really important. And what I've come to realize in all of my partnerships um, is that I trust that my partner is doing everything that she can to better the team, however she feels like that's appropriate. So if that means she needs to go get her master's or she needs to be at home with her family or she needs to spend time with her boyfriend and her dog, that is important to her, then she needs to do it. For me, it's I need to be in the gym. I need to be, you know, touching the sand. I need to be doing that stuff. But I don't have that expectation of her, 
which I think I've only learned over the past two years, which has made me seem less of that kind of like uncoachable, intense athlete. Um, I've just kind of calmed down and realized like everyone is different. I'm hoping that Taylor is doing what she needs to feel the most prepared, but I don't need to dictate what that is for her. Wow. That's, that's awesome. I'm definitely learning a lot and that's something our listeners can apply well if they're playing or coaching or doing anything. That's, that's a great answer. Thank you. Yeah, of course. It, get, it, it took a long time to learn that. So you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> it gets frustrating trying to control other people, I think. Totally. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think, you know, the pause, the timing of it may have worked out for your team because obviously you guys would have had a shorter preseason and things to get ready and all that stuff. But it sounds like you're still, you know, making gains and going to be ready when we are off this pause here. So just exciting to see what you and Taylor are able to accomplish. Because I think in our sport, some people like to look around and say, oh, why did so-and-so get that? Or they get upset where it's just refreshing to see you guys find your own way and not be looking around saying, oh, what is, what is that group doing over there that you guys have focused and found a way to work and are still getting results and enjoying our sports. So it's just awesome to see as an outsider. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's super important that everyone just learns that we just need to grow the sport as a collective. And so this is kind of side note, like side note, but I was in a cab in Fort Lauderdale years ago with Brandy. And this is when Brandy, I think she was, I don't remember who she was playing with. It might've been Heather, but it was like very first year, second year, maybe early on um, before they became super successful. But I remember sitting with her in this taxi and we were having conversations, of course, about volleyball. And she goes, I don't know why in Canada, we all just can't support each other enough to know that we can all, there's room on the podium for everybody. She was like, this week, I'll win. Next week, you win. The week after that, so-and-so wins. And we can just swap. But how amazing would it be if it was just all Canadians on the podium? And then I think it was the following year in Stad was when, you know, all four of our top Canadian women were on the podium. And so the rest of us who are kind of the next gen developing, I'm like, ooh, cool. What if we were also on the podium? So I think that, you know, the, there's like a shift, there's a, a change in culture that's coming shortly, um, which is really, really exciting that, you know, it doesn't have to be everyone's at each other's throats to win that gold medal. It's like, there's enough events for everyone to win a medal and to all still support each other and be happy for each other. Yeah, that's, that's such a good point. When we had Mike Sleen on the show, he talked about carding for the beach national team in his era was just based on results. So yeah. you were you were at events and you're kind of like, ah, I don't know if I should be rooting for people or did this or that. But he said that you still found a way, like he was playing with George Lubacek and he would still support Anton and Delaney and all these other guys playing. And I'm I'm just thinking, listen to your description, if that era could get along and support each other when they're honestly just competing for results, why we can't do that is fascinating. And I'll give a shout out to Alex Russell here on the show where he's brand new to the beach team and has no time for this. And it's just refreshing to work with an athlete who really doesn't want to get caught up in the gossip or whatever everybody else is doing and then you add in what you and taylor are doing that it's uh, i think we're trending in the right direction as far as like being supportive and still high performance in your own lane right oh absolutely and i mean i'm definitely guilty of it i again when i was in fort lauderdale i you know had a pretty poor result when i was playing with julie um bad qualification match i was angry and i remember watching taylor pishke and jamie broder two friends of mine um, play against Japan and me hoping that they lost. And I was like, what is going on in your head? Like you have to catch yourself and be like, this is ridiculous. You need to stop thinking this. And I, the next week apologized to Jamie and Taylor. They didn't know that I was thinking it, but I felt so guilty that like my fellow Canadians who ends up winning that match, I was rooting against them because there was this weird dynamic at the time where everyone's just at each other's throat for results. And I don't think it needs to be like that. And I'm kind of happy that, you know, the Alex Russells and the Liams are going to change that culture and shift that a bit. Um, and Jamie was like, dude, thank you so much for reaching out and saying that because a lot of people would not have apologized. I was like, you weren't in my head. You don't know what I was saying. But I felt so guilty about it. And I think that there, we now need to support each other a little bit more. And I'm, I'm happy that it's finally happening. Awesome. Awesome. And yeah, I, again, just a shout out to you, like for you to leave the national team program and then you actually helped us out. Like you'll come be a fourth at practice or you'll bring a partner and play. And I think that just shows a lot of class because I think if I were to leave a situation and be 
like I, I don't want to be a part of it. And then for them to invite me back and me to go there, I think I would be uncomfortable and maybe even turn it down where you you came to practice, you were coachable, you you made everybody better. So I think that's just showing how your maturity's kind of taken over and the professionalism. I think, like you said, it's kind of trending in the right way here in Canada. Well, thank you. That's a huge compliment. <laughs> Well, I've taken a, a lot of your time here, but the, the tradition we're trying to build on the show is just a funny story. So you've already shared your unique experiences in our sport and you've shared some good stories as well. But I was wondering if you could just try to think of a hilarious one before we let you go to show that even though you're a world champion and NCAA champion and you've accomplished more and you're going to keep doing that on your, on your career here. But man, something funny or odd had to happen during your career. Um, I don't know if this is super funny, but it's very memorable for me. It was my first FIVB with V. We were in Thailand and we had booked a, um, a villa, like 45 minute walk away from the venue. And the people at the villa knew when we were getting up to have breakfast, but without us actually telling them ever. And it changed every day. And they always moved the breakfast into a different location and it was always hot. So that for me was kind of freaky. Um, I don't know how they knew that we were awake, but anyways, not the point of the story. So Thailand experience, playing in my first world tour event qualification, and V and I are warming up, and we are in the middle of a monsoon. It is pouring rain. I cannot see V, and she is six feet away from me. It was like nothing else I've ever experienced in terms of rain, and they didn't cancel our, our matches. They didn't postpone our matches. Matches still happened. In the middle of our match, they had to make us move courts because our court was flooding. <laughs> but I genuinely could not even see Victoria. I was like, I don't know how we're about to play volleyball. Like, it, it was just ridiculous. I don't know how our games didn't get postponed. Um, we ended up losing that match. That was the second round of the qualification. And then at the time, there was the lucky loser draw. So they put us against whoever else, 50-50 chance of going into the main draw. Our name doesn't get pulled. I was like, oh, no, come on. One more chance. Same thing. The other name gets put into the hat. 50-50 chance of going into the main draw. Our name doesn't get pulled. I'm like, Thailand was just an experience for me. Being my first ever FIVB World Tour event, I was like, is this what I should expect every time? <laughs> I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> oh, I didn't I didn't realize you went through that because when you and I were in, I think it's pronounced Chinzao, the first day we got there to train, I think our court got flooded too. And the volunteers were like digging like a trench to get yes. the water off the court. Oh my gosh, I totally remember that. I was like, this is traumatic. Like this is bringing back nightmares. I have PTSD. <laughs> so yeah, our young listeners, you can dream of playing on like center court in Vienna or Klagenfurt and think that that's beach volleyball. But sometimes you're just on the side court that's going to get flooded and you just got to deal with it, I guess. You just got to deal with it. You got to learn to swim. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. So Sophie, thank you so much for taking the time. It's good to hear about your career and everything you've accomplished and, and how you've accomplished it. And and shout out just to Titans and all the coaching and all the other stuff you got going on. It sounds like you're you're super busy, but still focused on your goals. And like I said, it was good to learn more about your career and just share some stories. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's awesome. I love what you're doing and I'm excited to hear who else comes on. Oh, we got some good ones. Just wait. I love it. <laughs> I love it.